just give you a little uh, taste for what's ahead as you're planning. We are going to get back to walking through a book of the Bible. We'll probably late February, early March when we start on the book of Acts. So if you want to be reading ahead, we'll be starting a survey of Acts at that point. Uh, it's the month of February, Pastor Stewart's working on some topical sermons that uh, will scripture uh, applying to different areas of life. So we're looking forward to that. Also wanted to, for next week, that we're going to finish our, our study on suffering this morning. And then next week, um, you know the old adage about when you're gathered at family gatherings, you don't discuss religion and politics. Well, obviously, we, we talk about Jesus a lot, and we talk about the Word of God, so why not talk about politics, too? So um, what I want to do next Sunday is just help us think through how we engage as individual believers and as a, a, a body of believers. This is, you may have heard on the news, this is an election year. <laughs> you, you, may, you may have heard some political news here and there. It just seems overwhelming. Uh, and, and just want to help us think about that next week from Scripture on how we might apply our, our engagement, our interaction on, on topics related to politics next Sunday. So there's one to invite your friends to, right? Um, in, in the bulletin, uh, the sermon notes are there, and at the bottom I've included all the, the different books that I've put out during the series that I've recommended. There's, that's just a sample. There are a number of great works on the topic of suffering, but I had people ask me at the door about different titles I'd mentioned, so they're all listed there in those notes. Um, one is um, Randy Alcorn's devotional book. You may have read he did a larger volume on heaven, just what the life in Christ looks like in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, and then this is just a devotional form of that, 50 days of heaven, um, just sort of snippets from out of his book. Um, this one is uh, free for the taking for whoever wants to grab that after the service. There's one other book, um, already gave away the, the, the second service copy, sorry, had a, a, somebody that needed a copy of Cameron Cole's Therefore I Have Hope. Um, all of the, the, these books I would encourage as um, resources for you as you think about suffering, but also as resources for you to give to others as you seek to minister to them. Um, I mentioned this book, Cameron Cole writes, Therefore I Have Hope. It's a, um, 12 Truths from Scripture and Dealing with Grief. And it arises out of study that came after he and his wife lost their three-year-old son. And, and in early on in the book, he writes, when the worst comes upon you, it feels as if your life has been transformed into a marathon without a finish line. Isn't that a helpful picture, I think, in, in what suffering can feel like at times? Um, no finish line. Just It feels like we are slogging along. Um, no matter what distance race you're in, a finish line is important. Uh, you want something to know that, that, that all of this work and all of this hardship is, is, is getting to a point. It's not just endless. Knowing there's a finish line is what rescues the, the runner from despair because even if, even if he can't see it, he still knows it's there. It's still somewhere down there, and, and there will be an end to this. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we suffer. And there are times when your life will feel like you are slogging through an endurance race that doesn't seem to have a finish line. It just, there are times, and some of you have walked through these seasons, where it just seems like it's one thing after another, where there's something that goes wrong, and then there's something within the family, and then there's the death of a loved one, and it just seems to, to sort of compound sometimes. And, and it just, that, that feeling of despair is like this endurance race, and you're wondering when it ends. If you have not felt the effects of, of 
suffering in any recent time, then, then they're probably coming at some point. That's just the reality. If you've not lost a loved one, you probably will. If you've not been debilitated by some kind of physical or mental weakness in some way, you, you may well at some point. If you haven't suffered some form of abandonment, some sort of other caused sin, you will at some point. That's, that's just the reality of life in this fallen world. And that's why we've spent these last four weeks as we concluded talking about suffering from Scripture. It's a hard topic, but our goal has been to look at it from the perspective of hopeful suffering, exalting Christ together in seasons of pain, trying to see that, that Scripture speaks to this and speaks to our response to it. We looked first at God's role in our suffering. Where is God as we are walking through suffering? How do we respond to unjust suffering? We looked at a couple of weeks ago and then last week some, some sort of biblical coping strategies, if you will, for when the, the worst hits home, for when we feel like we are in the, the deepest of valleys. This morning I want to finish by thinking together about the end of suffering, that, that finish line, that, that there is something ahead for us as believers, that there is, there is something that we are aiming toward. For those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, there is a finish line. It is a glorious one, what awaits us on the other side, and we are called to, to fix our minds on that, to be thinking about what lies ahead of us. Occasionally, I... I jog my way through a 5K or 10K. I try to use jog and not run. That would be very loose use of the term run. Um, but occasionally I will do that. And when you, when you get to the finish line, usually there's some smiling volunteer there with a, a little medal on a ribbon and a bottle of water that they hand you. And that's, your, that, that, that's the epitome of a participation award. It doesn't matter how slow or fast you went. If you are 10th place or 125th, you get the ribbon with the medal and you wear it proudly. And, and, and I've got a stack of them hanging up in my closet gathering dust. Um, for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, there is a finish line. And there is a much more glorious prize that awaits us on the other side. At the end of our earthly lives is a treasure the likes of which Scripture continues to point us toward and yet reminds us that we can only begin to imagine. We can't really fathom all that this is like. We, we get sort of scenes in Scripture, glimpses in Scripture of, of what it is that awaits us that we are called now to fix our minds on. At the end of, of Chronicles of Narnia, uh, C.S. Lewis, as he's coming to the end of his final volume, says that for the reader, this is, for the, this is the end of the story for the reader, but, but for the characters who have died, he writes this, for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. Isn't that a sweet picture of, of what lies ahead? This, this life being sort of the, the little bit at the front and all the rest of the story is yet to come and it just continues to get better. And it is easy for us to lose sight of that, isn't it? It is easy and at seven o'clock on Monday morning when, when the week starts, it is, it is really easy for us to get those, those words of C.S. Lewis and to forget the words of scripture that tell us, Look ahead, there is, there is hope. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. That is hard to do 
And we need help in that, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. 2 Corinthians, if you would turn to 2 Corinthians, I think Paul offers us some help. The Word of God offers us some help in 2 Corinthians. This is a, an interesting letter. If, if it's not Paul's most difficult letter, it's, it's pretty high on the list uh, in, in terms of his pastoral engagement with a flock that he has been instrumental in ministering to and, and then having some rocky times in the relationship. 2 Corinthians is definitely it. Uh, there is, it appears from 2 Corinthians, probably another letter. There, there was certainly 1 Corinthians, but then another letter that we um, don't have in Scripture that isn't part of the canon of Scripture. Um, but, but his relationship is filled with struggle because the Corinthians struggled. If you read 1 and 2 Corinthians, you see a, a church that is reflective of, of us as believers in the sense that they struggled with sin and temptation. They were in a perverse culture. They, they struggled with conflict in, in the church itself. They struggled with tolerating grievous sin in their midst by other believers. And then when they were confronted about tolerating grievous sin and, and had to respond to it, they swung the pendulum the other way, and then they struggled with being unforgiving and unkind to those who were repentant. And so all along the way, Paul is sort of speaking correction to them in, in, in terms of behaviors and attitudes that we struggle with. We, we, we don't look at them different in the sense that we know where they are at. But it's also evident in, in portions of 2 Corinthians that there is some some undermining of Paul's authority that has gone on, whether it's from false teachers or others. There has been some, some questioning of Paul and Paul's motives, and so he's also having to deal with just some of this sort of break in the relationship. And in, in verse 23 of chapter 1, he essentially says, With God as my witness, the reason I didn't come to visit you, even though I planned to, was to spare you. There, there seems to be, as, as Paul is describing it, and, and he alludes to later on in chapter 13, that, that they were disobeying clear instructions from God. They were rebelling against the word of God. And Paul was just at a moment where it, it, he just didn't want to go personally and do this chastisement. He did it rather by the form of this letter. And so he says, I didn't come just to spare you because clearly he was reacting to what they were doing. 2 Corinthians 2.4 says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So at the core of it, despite all that has gone on, Paul says, I'm, I'm writing you because I love you. I want you to walk with Christ. I want you to know the glories of Christ. And so I, I, I'm writing to you to help mend our relationship, but mostly to point you to Christ. In addition, amidst all of this, Paul is writing from his own context of suffering. And, and, and 2 Corinthians helps us to see, uh, Paul will go on and give a litany of all the different ways that he has been beaten and imprisoned and suffered and, and stoned nearly to death and all of the things that have happened in his life. And it is clear as he writes 2 Corinthians that it is out of the midst of turmoil. If you look at chapter 1, verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's quite a picture that Paul gives, not, not, certainly not given over to hyperbole at this point. He is speaking as he is led by the Spirit, the Word of God, and he is speaking to them of tremendous suffering. We don't know all of the details of what Paul is experiencing at this point, he and his colleagues, but it seems as if 
The implication here is that the Corinthians have some understanding of it when he says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers. That Greek word for unaware has the idea of, of, of ignoring something. They, 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 there seems to be some sense where they, they have some realization that Paul's going through hardship, but they're really not tuned in and not paying that much of attention, and it's not all that important on their radar, and so they are somewhat oblivious to the depth of his suffering. And, and Paul says to them, I... I was utterly or excessively, if you will, burdened, as he says there, burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. This was not just some sort of fleeting instance, one of those moments where you say, come on, man up, push through. Um, Paul is, is struggling in this to the point that he is now despairing of life. He is wondering how the sun comes up again the next day. You, you may have walked through these experiences in your life where you just feel like this is just going nowhere good and he is in, in, in utter despair. And, and it's all purposeful because if you look at verse nine, he says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Hold that thought because we'll revisit that. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul is confessing what we talked about in week one as we studied this, and that is God is at work in this suffering. This is not a situation where Paul and his colleagues are despairing and feeling like they are about to die in persecution, and God is sort of helplessly standing by going, I I wish I could do something, but I can't. But rather, he says, God is at work in this to teach us to depend on him. This is all purposeful in God's plan so that, the, that by coming to the end of ourselves and despairing of life itself and feeling like we're under the death sentence was actually to bring us to the place of stopping relying on ourselves, stopping believing that we could muscle through this, that we could man up through this, that we could do it. It was to, to stop this sort of self-sufficient attitude and cause us to rely on him, on the one who raises the dead. And so um, Paul is, is, is clearly pointing back to the work of God in all of this as he's, in a sense, informing the Corinthians as he begins of, this is, this is what I'm writing to you out of. This is what I want you to be aware of. And in, in essence, imploring their prayer and their encouragement, which at least to this point does not appear to be forthcoming. So he's writing 2 Corinthians from the depths of his soul. This is, again, not just some sort of intellectual, you know, he's led by the Spirit and he's writing what God gives him, which is true. But, but this is coming out of the experience of real life suffering, plus this eagerness to, to write the relationship with the Corinthians. He does the introductory stuff that we've talked about in chapter three. He kind of speaks to the basic principle of Christian ministry that this is not something we do on our own. He, he reminds them again that it is the work of the spirit that empowers ministry. It is the work of the spirit that accomplishes fruit. It's not something we do on our own strength. And that takes us to chapter four. And that's really where I want us to spend our time, mostly in chapter four, just a little bit in five. But in chapter four, I, wanna, I, I want you to see three things. Three things that I think Paul says God gives his people to cause us to endure well. Three things that should help us suffer well as we continue to press forward, knowing there's a finish line, knowing there's something beyond the finish line. Three things to help us in our suffering. And so first one, verse one, chapter four, therefore, 
having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Stop there. Therefore, having this ministry by God's mercy, we do not lose heart. First thing that we have as believers in Jesus Christ is God's mercy to enable us to persevere. We have the mercy of God to help sustain us. As he says this, having this ministry by the mercy of God, remember what he's already told us, and that is the ministry that God has given him has already put his life in peril. It is the very ministry that God has called him to and equipped him for and given him mercy for that has put Paul in the place where he is believing that this is going to end in death, that this this has become that grievous, the persecution has become that intense. And so it is the very ministry that God has given him that has put him in this place. And so he says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Paul's suffering is on account of serving Christ. Exactly what Jesus said to his disciples, this is what you should expect. If you're gonna follow me and, and serve me, if they, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And so this kind of suffering is expected. And yet, Paul in the midst of it is recognizing God's mercy. It's really a contrast if you think about it. I am in this plight of physical suffering and emotional pain and mental turmoil because I am serving God and I am serving God by virtue of his mercy. He has put me here and I am am grateful for his mercy. Even while suffering, Paul could see that it was God's mercy that was at work. How does it work? Part of it is, first of all, Paul realizes that I would have no place in in serving God if it wasn't for his mercy. The the fact that I I serve the king of kings, the fact that I serve the the God of creation is clearly an act of of his mercy. And and in fact, Paul's the one who will go on in 2 Timothy and call himself the chief of sinners. Paul says, I I realize that it is mercy that I am here. Paul, like you and I, stood at a place before Christ redeemed us of flaunting our sin in the face of God. We we lived as rebels, as enemies of the cross, not bowing to him, not believing in Jesus Christ, going about as if it didn't matter, doing our own thing, serving ourselves and living life without him. You and I have no claim on God. And Paul knew that. Paul had experience with that. I mean, Paul's the one who's, who's leading the persecution of believers in Jesus Christ when God saves him from out of that. Paul is opposed to him. Paul had, had grown up, knew all of the Old Testament prophecies, all the rabbinic training. He didn't expect a suffering Messiah like Jesus, didn't want a suffering Messiah like Jesus, didn't think he needed a savior like Jesus. Paul's assumption was he would earn his righteousness by being a, a good person who did all the things that God commanded him to do. And then along comes this Jesus and, and, and Paul's world is changed. But that, that, that's, you and I may not have persecuted others, anything to the measure of what Paul did, but you and I come from the same place of having believed that that we could make God what we want him to be or serve God as we want him to be or or figure it all out apart from him. About 25 years ago, Robin and I were 
just wonderfully influenced by a, a guy who mentored us in counseling, godly man. He and his wife were, were very dear to us and sweet examples to us. And he died this past week. And his, his wife had been keeping just one of those online diaries of his last days as he was battling with cancer. And I was struck by an entry from a few days before he died. Said this, today we had a prolonged time with the immediate family where we sang each person's favorites and Skip spoke what is most dear to him that each child embrace Christ as Christ declares himself to be, not as they would like him to be. That's a powerful statement. Um, guy who has five grown children now. And, and that should be, by the way, that's just a little side piece, isn't it, for us as parents? That, that should be our desire. That should be our desire for ourselves and for our kids, that they would know Christ for who he is, not as they would desire him to be. Paul is saying here, it is, it is only God's mercy that rescues you from that. It's only by God's mercy that I finally see Christ for who Christ is. It's only by God's mercy that I am able to see this one that I have been hostile toward as my Savior who gave himself as a ransom for my sin. And so if God has rescued you from the idolatry of, of trying to remake him in your image, if God has saved you from your sin and given you forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if God is using you in serving him today, then you have been a, a recipient of the generous mercy of God. You have received God's mercy to be where you are. Rather than giving us what we deserve, mercy is God showing not only compassion and kindness, but not giving us the judgment and the wrath that we deserve, but coming to us in, through, through Christ and giving us life. Our coming to Christ in faith is not a, not a testimony to our own smarts, our own uh, weighing all of the world religions and, and smartly deciding on the right one. Our, our serving of Christ is not a testimony to our own strength and, and applying our own sort of wisdom and competency to things. These are results of God's grace, and they remind us of his mercy, how he generously gives us so much more than we deserve and doesn't give us what we actually do deserve. So how does this apply to suffering? Paul says, therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Paul says that mercy is one of the sustaining factors in my life, that the mercy of God is one of the things that keeps me from losing heart and getting discouraged and giving up and getting frustrated because I know the mercy of God. However awful things are today, however much I am being perhaps beaten in his case, however much I am suffering from this disease, however terrible things are, they are not nearly as bad as being apart from Christ, as not knowing the Savior. And God in his mercy has saved me and by his mercy has rescued me from eternal death. There is no circumstance that could possibly be worse than being lost and dead in sin and not knowing Christ. And Paul says, by his mercy, I do not lose heart. He's going to repeat that down in verse 16. We'll read it again in a moment, but we do not lose heart. It's the idea of not, not giving up. In the midst of anguish, I'm not going to betray my faith. I'm not going to throw my hands up in anger at God and, and, and be disgusted at, at my circumstances because I, I, I can stop and contemplate the fact that he has already been so merciful to me. He has already rescued me a sinner and given me life and hope. That's a truth we need to reflect on. Do you, do you, do you ponder God's mercy? Do you stop in the middle of 
of whatever trial, whatever pain you are going through, and reflect on just how merciful God has been to you. Life, breath, salvation, hope, peace with Christ, peace with your Creator. I think Paul here is just urging, even to the Corinthians, that what you have is the mercy of God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he has lavished mercy on you, so do not lose heart. All right, let's drop down a few verses. Verse 5 of chapter 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. He's talking about ministry here. We preach Christ. It's not about us. We're just trying to be servants of the Lord. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 a lot of scriptures have little notes in your ear that interrupt. They're not there in the original text, right to verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The treasure is the glory of God. We have God's mercy to sustain us, to cause us to persevere. We have God's indwelling glory, as he describes it here, to empower us. In verses 3 and 4, Paul had been talking about the gospel. His message here is how the gospel brings the light of the glory of God. And so the, the, the question, the objection might be, well, what about those who are not believers? Is there something wrong with the gospel? And, and so what he said in the prior verses is, no, it's not, it's not the gospel. It is the blindness of those who are lost. They are darkened in their understanding. They don't see the light of the gospel. And so the failure is not in the gospel itself. The failure is in the heart of the one who is lost, which is why we as believers then marvel at God's mercy. The fact that we are able to see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that we are able to embrace that glory is his mercy at work in us, enabling us to do that and, and lifting the scales of the blindness. It's God who causes light to shine out of darkness so that we might see his glory as he describes it here. Glory is Glory is praiseworthiness. Glory is the sum of, of everything that makes God unique and great and transcendent and majestic over his creation. We speak of the glory of God, we're, talk, we're talking about that which makes God God, that which uniquely makes him over and above all else. And what Paul uses here to try to illustrate that is the picture of a bright light in darkness. If, if you've been in pitch black darkness and suddenly a light shines, talking to, to, to Doug Spaulding on the way out, and he was remembering a story of being in a cave with a guy who had taken a bunch of friends down in one of these caves, and they all had their flashlights, and the guy was going to show them something. And he said, here, give me all your flashlights. And then he walked away from them all for a while, left them in the darkness, and then finally shined the light from, from way down the path inside the cave. And he said, that light just, I mean, that stands out. That's the kind of illustration he's trying to help us get, because this is as, as much as our simple minds can get the glory of God, this brilliant light that shines into the darkness of sin and death. And then, verse 7, he describes that glory of God as a treasure, so it is of untold value. But the amazing thing about verse 7 is this treasure, this light of the knowledge of the glory of God, this treasure is in jars of clay to show us that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. The glory of God... The, the magnificent glory of God, he says, now dwells in us, 
Christ in us. That is the, 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 one of the, the things of the New Testament that just blows our minds that, that Christ through his spirit actually lives in us. Paul taught this in Colossians chapter 1. He's, he's teaching on the very topic of, well, he's talking about there his own afflictions in Colossians chapter 1. He's talking about the greatness and the supremacy of Christ, but he, he couches it in the afflictions that he had endured. And then he describes and says, this is, this is a mystery. Mystery being something that previously was not understood, now is being revealed. And he says that, that is this. You who know Christ have Christ in you, the hope of glory. This was previously something that they couldn't fathom, that the Savior, that God could come and and dwell in them. And he said, Christ in you, the actual person of Jesus Christ, gloriously dwelling in in the person of believers. That is the treasure that he's referring to. And, And he then uses the language. You've got this brilliant light, this magnificent glory, And where is it residing? But verse 7 says, in jars of clay. One commentator helps us get the cultural picture here. He says, clay jars were unexceptional, affordable, disposable, and put to a wide variety of uses in the ancient world. Think plastic shopping bags. I mean, that's that's probably our our similar equivalent here. As mass-produced throwaway containers for the general population, they were both fragile and expendable. Paul's emphasis, however, seems to rest on the idea of fragility. The idea that this thing is good for its purpose for a little while, and then that's about it. It, It's going to break. And so I'll, I'll use that plastic bag from Walmart for all kinds of things, but I'm not going to put the family heirloom, the vase, in that and carry it around in the bag and, and trust that it's okay because I understand that that bag is, is actually pretty fragile. And at one point, it's going to give out. And that's, that's what he's describing here. And this is what we need to meditate on when suffering comes. For, for all of the, the amazing intricacies of the human body, all of the extraordinary details. We are incredibly fragile and weak. We are breakable. We live in a fallen world that is under the curse of sin. We are surrounded by the corruption of sin, and we feel it in our own bodies. In Romans 8, Jeremy read to you earlier from the the last portion of Romans 8, and one of the reasons that last portion about the the love of God in Christ, why that's so significant is because of what he has reminded us of earlier, and that is sin and what sin causes and and death and the curse. And in Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Finish line, looking ahead. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That phrase, the creation, is not speaking of humanity so much at this point. He'll he'll separate that down in verse 22 and 23. He'll clarify the distinction between persons and the creation. What he's describing there is what we would, in our world, commonly call nature. And he's saying that the creation is, is subject to futility. Sin infects all of creation, and so nature is distorted and damaged, and even the creation is longing for the return of Jesus. That's what it means, the revealing of the sons of God. It is, it is longing for that day when the dead in Christ rise and, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ takes place. And that's because Romans 8.20 goes on to say, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There again is the, the contrast that we're going to see with from Paul of the, this contrast between corruption 
and curse and the degrading effects of sin and the glory of God, the matchless eternal glory of God. Sin corrupts and degrades. Sin destroys and it causes death. When Adam and Eve sinned, their bodies immediately began to feel the effects of that. They didn't physically die immediately, but they became immediately separated from their God. The God with whom they had walked and talked in the garden and had a perfect relationship, that was now severed because of what they had done in their sin, and they were in need of redemption. They were in need of a Savior now. They didn't die physically, but they began to decline. They began the same process that you and I experience that ultimately leads our bodies to stop functioning and ends in physical death because we are weak bodies. And that's why Paul uses that language of clay pots, destined to eventually return to the dust from which man came. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, the message here in 2 Corinthians is the glory of God dwells in that clay pot. The, the majesty of God the, the, the brilliance of the Savior Jesus Christ now lives inside you if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. And God thrives in weakness. It's not that he has some, in some sort of sick way wanting to, to prove to you that you're weak and he's strong. It's because he wants to display his greatness and people should see his greatness. And it is in our weakness that his greatness, his majesty is best magnified. When we are at our weakest, that is the place by which people begin to see the glory of God at work in us. And, and Paul describes it here in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says that the fact that we can be afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. Verses um, 8 and 9 there when he says they're afflicted but not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Despite all of the affliction and persecution, we are still praising God. And that is evidence of the glory of God dwelling in us. That's, that's not evidence of the fact that we're really strong and, and, and we muscled through this. That is evidence of the strength of God. In, in, in his children, in, in the clay pots that are us, filling us and empowering us. That's why in chapter 11, Paul will say, I boast in my weaknesses. That's why in chapter 12, he'll talk about I, 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 my, his grace is sufficient in my weakness. I've learned now to, to, to be at home in that state of weakness because in that condition, God's grace is what's being mediated through me and what people are seeing. That's what scripture calls us to to believe as we run this grueling race and as you walk through suffering and as you, as you walk through loss and you experience weakness, it is all to drive us to be more dependent than ever on the glory and power and greatness of the Savior who is in us, who, who longs to empower us, who urges us to see weakness as an opportunity to depend all the more on him. Verse 13, chapter 4. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. So talking about ministry here and speaking forth truth. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus 
will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to what? The glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He's given us mercy in order to sustain us and cause us to persevere. He is, he's, his glory indwells us in order to empower us to continue to follow him and serve him even in the midst of suffering. And he has given us the knowledge of the resurrection of the dead. God raises the dead, and that gives us hope in whatever circumstance we're in, no matter what we face. Paul introduced this theme, if you remember, back in chapter 1, verse 9, when he says, we despaired, we felt like the, the sentence of death was on us, and that was for the purpose of causing us to depend on God, who, he says in 1.9, God who raises the dead doesn't just say that was done to us to help us depend on God, but he's already bringing back in this theme of resurrection to say, at the moment when I was thinking that my death was imminent, that's when I learned all the more to depend on a God who raises the dead. So that whatever the outcome, whatever God chooses to do in that, I am resting in a God who raises the dead. And so I, I still know there's a finish line and there is life beyond that. Uh, this is not all there is. Sin and death are real. The degradation of the body is happening to all of us. Um, in 4.14 there, it says that we need to know that our, our, our faith is in the one who raised the Lord Jesus, um, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. What is here is the suffering, the hardship, the experiences, what, it, what is here is momentary. What is there is eternal. What lies ahead is eternal. And he's, he's beginning to contrast these two, but while he's doing that, he's also making the point that, that these two are beyond comparison. There's no weighing of the scales here because the one is momentary and the other is an eternal weight of glory. The suffering of this life is real, it is painful. It causes us to weep. Paul acknowledges that when he says in verse 16, though the outer self is wasting away, the Greek language there is decaying, it is corrupting, it is, it is the basic word for corrupting or defiling, and it has a prefix put on it that makes it be throughout. So he's saying that it is, we, are, we are fully wasting away. Everything about us is at some level or another is, is moving toward its own demise. These jars of clay are wearing out. That's, a, that's an easier message to recognize the older you get that, that this is happening. If you're younger, this may sound like it's really distant. But, but you know what? Even if nothing devastating ever happens to you over time, your health will degrade. It will begin to go away. Your eyesight, your hearing will fade. Your, your muscle tone. <laughs> you try all you want, but at some point, it'll start to go away. And your bones will become more brittle. Cartilage will begin to go away. The fact that we live in a fallen world is the reality that causes 
cells to grow abnormally and grow wildly and, and form cancer that kills people. The fact that we live in a fallen world is, it, it attacks nerves in the brain and causes disease and dementia and the heartbreak of, of forgetting things and people that, that we knew so well because we live in a fallen world. So the fact that we live in a fallen world in mortal bodies means that sometimes even little children whose bodies seem so healthy and strong are suddenly overwhelmed with disease. And yet, somehow, in verse 17, God has the audacity to call these things light, momentary affliction. That's a phrase that should just capture us as we read through this passage. Because we know what affliction is and we know what suffering is. And yet he says, for this light, momentary affliction. And the reason Paul can write it that way as someone who has been beaten and brought near the point of death and despaired of life itself is because he understands that by God's design, there is a limit to the afflictions on his children if only the fact that there is a finish line with a glorious hope beyond that finish line that this is not all there is. See, he's contrasting weight. So in verse 17, when he says light, he's speaking about something that doesn't weigh a lot as opposed to an eternal weight of glory. Our, our, our afflictions and suffering don't always feel light in the moment, do they? This is, this is language that's hard in the funeral home or at the hospital bedside. And yet it is the word of God that says, when seen, when viewed through the lens of eternity, when seen as God sees it, that affliction actually is not going to crush you to the point of wiping you out. That, that oppression is, is not so weighty that you cannot bear it because there is a finish line. And on the other side of that, is what he describes here as an eternal weight of glory. One commentator translates that as eternal tonnage of glory. There is something on the other side of that that is so much greater and bigger and weighs more. It's, it, it, you can't compare it to the affliction on this side. That is light and temporary compared to the experience of the glory of God and the enjoyment of that that awaits us in heaven. The sufferings and afflictions of this life will end. They are temporary. But on the other side of that finish line is more than a smiling volunteer with a medal and a bottle of water. There is the eternal God. There is our Savior who gave himself for us, who is in his fullness and glory in heaven, and we enjoy that. We enter into that glory and spend eternity in his presence. And his whole point here is to, to draw the contrast and say, as we endure the sufferings of this life as God's children, there is, as, as we're enduring that, there is accumulating for us an appreciation of God's glory, an enjoyment of God's glory that gets greater with every suffering here on earth, with every affliction here on earth. What, what, what lies before us becomes that much more magnificent. Our experience in heaven and our delight in the majesty of God will be even more magnificent after all the trials and sufferings, the light momentary affliction that we have lived through here. 
because of what Jesus has done, because of what the gospel has done, that the work of Jesus Christ in dying for sinners and rising again and defeating sin and death, that the pain and the tears and the anguish that are real will be left at the finish line. And that's why Revelation says, no more. He will wipe them away. And not only do we leave those behind, it's not just what we, we, we shed there, but it is what we take on as those who now enjoy for eternity the magnificent glory of God and have a joy like we cannot even begin to imagine. And Paul says there's just, there's no comparison here. He's used the illustration of jars of clay to, to speak to our weakness and fragility. And in chapter 5, he, he then turns that, that mortal body illustration to using a tent to describe the body. The tent being sort of that which houses the, the soul. It's not, to, not speaking at all to the insignificance of the body. We are created in the image of God. We will be raised bodily, and so bodies are significant in God's economy. But he also has that picture of the, the soul's longing to flee from this earthly tent, the inner man's desire to be shedding off this earthly tent and to be clothed in the heavenly dwelling. He speaks about it in chapter 5, verse 2, that we groan and long for our heavenly dwelling. That does not mean that we as Christians have a, have a death wish in some way. We should take every day, as Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes, as a gift of God, and we should be thankful for that, and we should live each day to the full glory of God. We should be good stewards of each day and thankful that God has given us the chance to worship him and serve him and serve others and love them here. But the reality is, our soul was not made to find its ultimate joy stuck here in this decaying earth. When God banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, it is the greatest demonstration of his kindness to them. He does that to stop them from returning to the tree of life, by which they could continue to eat and continue to sustain themselves and continue to live. And ultimately, out of God's kindness, he kept them from eating, from, it, from sustaining themselves in what would eventually become an endless agony in a fallen world. This is not paradise, right? We know that. And, and we could go on and on here, but at some point, what our souls are longing for is to be with our Creator and to be in the glory of his presence. God has made us to find our ultimate delight in him. And so he says in chapter 5 and verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He's talking about just the, the, the resurrection body, taking on the resurrection body, that which is mortal, that jar of clay, that, that which is transient and temporary is swallowed up in immortality and there is eternal life. The knowledge of the resurrection gives us hope so that in whatever suffering we face, we know that death is not simply the end. It's not just the, the end of pain. It is the, the move into the presence for the believer in Jesus Christ, the move into the eternal presence of our God to rejoice in him and to enjoy him. That is the promise of the resurrection. Paul is really following up here on what he had taught in 1 Corinthians. If you remember 1 Corinthians 15, the whole section on the resurrection, in which Paul essentially, as he's teaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, says, listen, if, if this component isn't true, if this doctrine that Jesus Christ rose from the dead isn't true, then, then we're fools. 
If we've put our hope in Jesus and he's not been raised from the dead, then we're still in our sins and there is no hope after this. And we are to be pitied above anyone else on earth because we have believed falsely in this. And then he says, but that's not the case because Jesus Christ has been risen. And that's why the resurrection changes everything. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, for this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in celebration, says not only is the resurrection real, but the implication of the resurrection is that ultimately death itself will be swallowed up. That Jesus Christ has taken the sting out of sin because the punishment of sin is death, and because of Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on the cross and his resurrection, now we have hope. And so the suffering of this life now gets, gets dealt with as temporary and against the backdrop of eternity in his presence. That's why, that's why God can say, light momentary affliction. Because when we view it from that aspect, we see that this is, this is a short time we have. And the finish line is closer than we think it is. And for those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will lay down our suffering and our pain and tears, and we will cross over into the eternal joy in the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. And that should make us sufferers who grieve, but not as those without hope. We have hopeful suffering. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for suffering in our place. We thank you for enduring the cross We thank you that by your death and resurrection, not only do we have forgiveness from our sins, cleansing from them, and life, eternal life, but we now have a whole new hope in the midst of life's trials. When we are being persecuted, when we are suffering, when a loved one is on the deathbed, when the doctor has given us the diagnosis, we, we still, we have, because of you and because of the gospel, we have a whole new way of looking at that. To see what, what for the world is, is nothing more than horror, we can see as light momentary affliction that is building for us an eternal weight of glory causing us to, to long for when we will be in your presence. We will see the one who gave himself for us. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ, plead with you, Lord, that you would save, that you would open their eyes, the very things we talked about before, that you would be merciful, and that you would cause them to see the Savior, Jesus Christ, that they would see the light shining in the darkness of their sin and see that there is forgiveness and hope in Christ alone. For those here who are trusting in Christ, Lord, I pray for any who are, are in that valley, in that 
experience of suffering even now, that you would be an ever-present help, that you would be ministering to them power, strength, upholding them, causing them to rely, to depend on you more than ever, to find you to be faithful, to find your strength to be sufficient. And Father, help us as a church body to have hope, to live out hope, to minister hope to others, to to point to Christ and the glories that await those who trust in him, that we might minister to one another even through the most difficult of times. The blessing that we have from your mercy in saving us, the glory that indwells us, and the resurrection that awaits us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.